0: But this time, let's bow our heads and let's pray together. Let's just ask the Lord to calm our hearts and our minds. And to open our hearts and minds to his word. Lord, we just come before you and we ask that as we hear from you, Lord, we pray your spirit would speak into our lives and to our hearts into our minds. We lift this time up to you. And Lord, we just pray for your spirit to move into the lives of your people. We ask this, Jesus, in your name. Amen. Uh, December 20th, 1997, my life completely changed And went on a new course and I was thinking about it I could probably say if not definitively say that was the best day of my life because what would follow from that day and would lead from there would be blessings that I never thought would happen and truly never thought would happen that was the day Jamie and I got married and I remember that particularly on that day. I remember the wedding day in the in the sanctuary of the chapel. I remember standing in the front of you know the, the, the sanctuary of the place, right up on the stage, and I was standing there with the pastor. And I remember he whispered something to me that I'll never forget. Something that I would share with the groom that I would grooms that I would eventually conduct their service their wedding I would share the same words that was shared to me that day and he whispered to me and he said Mike don't forget this moment you'll remember this moment for the rest of your life and the moment he was referring to specifically was when those doors would open and I would see my bride for the first time. So when he said that to me, I got excited, right? I'm already excited. I wasn't nervous, all right? I was more like excited up there, right? It's like, okay, I'm going to remember this moment. So I remember he made the announcements for all to rise for the coming of the bride. And the music started. And the doors opened. And as soon as the music hit, everybody stood up. But here's the problem: the door was not in line center with the center aisle; it was just adjacent. So when everybody stood up, all I could see were heads at the door. I couldn't get that capture that moment when those doors opened. and I saw Jamie for the first time because everybody stood up. I'm like, I had this near panic moment, like, wait. <laughs> I'm missing the moment. I can't see. And I was like trying to get, look around and go on my tiptoes. And it's not very manly for the groom to go on their tiptoes during the, the wedding ceremony. But everyone's looking there. So as she opened the door, I, I glanced. I saw her hair. I was looking around trying to catch a, catch a glimpse. But as she walked down and turned the corner, and there I saw her in the center aisle. There was my beautiful bride. And I remember that moment, and that's a moment that I've reminded other grooms in their weddings to remember that moment for the rest of your life. Almost twenty six years later, right? Fast forward twenty six later, we have three kids, three wonderful, beautiful kids, and that moment, truly, I say best single day of my life because of what will come from that day. And it's kind of interesting, I assume now at the 26 years later, I assume that I'm closer in days to my kid's wedding than I am of my own, right? And enough time has passed. We're probably closer to their wedding day than I am or that we are of our own wedding days. kind of crazy. In fact, I look back, you know, we've been moving our stuff out of storage and we came across our or one of our boxes of our wedding album, and looking back, looking at our wedding day pictures, don't worry, I don't have a picture. I I didn't bring a picture. No wonder we had so many stares from adults, because we looked like we were like 16. We looked really young. So I'm like, yeah, no wonder people were like looking. at us like, oh boy, they married young, right? But I would say that Jamie and I, we probably defied the odds 26 years later we defied the odds i saw some statistics couples who marry at 25 years old are 50% less likely to divorce compared to those who marry at 20 so people who marry at 25 years old is 50% less likely to have divorce to end in divorce than those who marry at 20 and we married at 21 So we're right in that area, right? So we continue to defy the odds. Marriages begin with a definitive declaration of I will, right? If those of you got married in the wedding ceremony, you have the vows I will, right? And whenever I marry somebody, I try to make sure that couple says with conviction, I will, or I do. The pastor did that to me, he kind of kind of messed with me a little bit during my sermon. I had to make sure I said, I didn't have to say, I will. I had to say, I will, right? The definitive yes. And I was trying to make sure the couples, when they say I will, they say it like they mean it, you know? But marriages start with those two words, I will, or I do right? Yet so many marriages end when the couples begin to think, will I? Will I? Will I be able to stay committed? Will I be happier with someone else? Will I be happier if I was just alone? It goes from I will to will I? Eventually, can I, right? Past few months, we've been looking at our understanding of what it means to be created in the image and likeness of God, right? Right? Do we fully understand what that means, being created in the image and likeness of God? And we've been looking at how the enemy really tries to attack our understanding of that. And yet he attacks our understanding in four ways. How we understand, or he attacks our selfish pride, right? He tries to manipulate our selfish pride. And then he tries to distort our self-image, so that we would have an unhealthy self-image, an unhealthy understanding of who we are and who we are, how we were created in God's image. And a lot of times that distortion of a self-image leads to self-loathing, depression, unhealthy self-image, and et cetera, right? He also attacks our ideas and our understanding of sexuality, our idea of intimacy. And he also distorts and attacked our understanding of the sanctity of life so that we would devalue life. We have, he would sabotage our understanding of what it means to be given life. And we looked at some challenges we face today related to those categories. But when we look at the decision that Adam and Eve made in the garden, we'll see that all four areas are affected by their decision. All four areas are affected: the selfish pride, self-image, sexuality, and also the sanctity of life. And all of humanity from that point on is affected in those areas. But especially in the marriage relationship We mentioned and we saw how marriage is the first human-to-human relationship God created, right? Between the man and the woman. It's the first human relationship God created. And it was the means in which God designed for families to come out, right? For life to perpetuate. He designed life to be created and how a man and a woman experiences unique, deep intimacy Is in first in this marriage relationship, and out of this marriage relationship comes family, right? But from the garden to the present, the marriage relationship has been affected by that decision Adam and Eve made in the garden, and the marriage relationship remains challenged and under great attack in our society today perhaps you could say more than ever before and divorce has become a common and accepted byproduct of such challenges and attack right divorce has become a common and accepted byproduct of such challenges and attacks came across some statistics Regarding divorce, in 2021, there was almost 2 million, 1,985,072 marriages occurred in that year, 2021. A total of 689,908 divorces, and now this is according to 45 states who keep this kind of statistic, right? There's 45 states who keep the statistic. California is not one of them. But in 21, nearly 2 million marriages occurred, and almost 700,000 divorces took place in 2021. Somewhere between 35% and 50% of marriages end in divorce. We've probably heard that statistic, that about half of marriages end in divorce. Statistics, you know, can vary, but they average a conservative estimate, 35 to 50% of marriages end in divorce. But this doesn't tell the whole story. When it comes to second and third marriages, they actually fail at a higher rate. 67% of second marriages end in divorce. 73% of third marriages end in divorce. 40% of new marriages include a partner who is remarrying. So you you get that idea? 40% of new marriages include a partner who is remarrying. 20% one of them is remarrying. The other 20% both are remarrying, right? You you get the idea of the picture? It's interesting that 6% of divorced couples remarry each other. So it happens. It's rare, but it happens. But divorce is not an issue unique to young couples. In 2022, 42% of people between ages of 45 and 54 have been divorced. Okay, catch that? 2022, 42% of people between ages of 45 and 54 have been divorced. The divorce rate of baby boomers is increasing. Adults aged 55 to 64 have a 46% divorce rate. Adults aged 65 to 74 have a 39% divorce rate. The divorce rate doubled among U.S. adults aged 50 and older since the 1990s. So since the 1990s, the divorce rate doubled among U.S. adults aged 50 and older. In 2019, the divorce rate for 50 years and older was 10 in every 1,000. In 1990, the divorce rate was 5 in every 1,000. Here's some more interesting things. Divorcees are more likely to die earlier than married couples or married people what's interesting is divorced men bear the brunt of this increased risk the mortality rates of men, for men the mortality rates is 1772 per 100,000 men die earlier compared to women where it's 1095 per 100,000. Couples who live together, now this is kind of interesting, I don't know if you've talked with people, and every once in a while you'll meet a couple and say, well, you know, we're thinking about getting married, but we want to live together first to see if we're compatible, if we can get along with each other. Or they'll say, you know what, we've been together for so long, if we live together, it's practically like getting married married. It's interesting. Couples who live together before marriage are more likely to divorce. 57% of couples who did not cohabitate prior to marriage had a union lasting 20 more or more years compared to 46% who did. Interesting. Here's another interesting tidbit. Couples who have friends who divorce have a 75% increase in the risk of their own marriages ending in divorce. Those who have friends who divorce have a 75% increase, risk, in their own marriages ending in divorce. Some people see that as a social contagion, right? Right? that influence, that thought. Among adults 20 and older, 34% of women and 33% of men who've ever been married have been divorced. Among those aged 55 to 64, that number is about 43% for both sexes. Catch that. This number drops to 39% among adults 65 to 74 and 24% among those 75 and older, right? So you kind of see the the skew a little bit, right? You marry too young, but then as you get a little older, it gets safe. But as you get older, the risk increases again. And on the other side, there's this, this tension stage. But as you get along older, you're more likely to last. Here's an interesting stat. When one person does not work, this can impact the chances of the marriage surviving. Single income. In 2022, only 21% of divorces involve men not in the labor force. 22% 22% of divorces involve women who are not working. That may be contrary to what you would think. Only a single income. You would think, oh my goodness, how can a family survive? How can the marriage last? It's kind of interesting. The most common reason people cite for divorce 75% cite a lack of commitment. cite infidelity, and 58% too much conflict and arguing, the most common reasons people cite for divorce. But perhaps the most concerning statistic as a pastor, the religion with the highest divorced population is evangelical Protestants. I would guess almost all, if not all of us in this room, would probably describe us in that category of evangelical Protestants. We are the most divorced group of people among those who fall into a religious category. 55% of evangelical Protestants are married. 14% are divorced within evangelical Protestants. And I wonder if this statistic really involves those who remarried as well, right? People without a religion, unaffiliated with a religion, have a divorce population of 11%. 11%, 14% is not that much difference from 11%. Now, statistics don't tell the whole story, right? Statistics don't say give a whole story of anything but they certainly are interesting data. Exceptions certainly exist. Today we're going to look, go back at what happened in the garden with Adam and Eve and their decision and see how their decision affects all marriages today. It's not that what they did is they're responsible for what's going on in our marriages today, right? We can't just sit back and say, man, if it wasn't for Adam and Eve, our marriages would just be perfectly fine. But we certainly see how we follow the same pattern or are affected by that decision that they had made. And if you're not married today, right, some of you are not married today, I think you'll find that the principles we go over today will apply to different areas in your life. And if you're hopeful that one day you will marry, hopefully that these things will serve as a a cautionary tale of the value of what the marriage relationship is so that you are prepared and ready for that time if and when that moment comes for you. But we're going to take a look first at a summary of what we know of the marriage God intended. Right? We've been looking at it the last you know, a couple months, right? What's the summary of what we know of the marriage, of the marriage relationship that God intended? And we know that first one, both were created in God's image and likeness. Man and a woman were created in the image and likeness of God. And God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him Male and female, he created them. Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. We covered that. We've covered that before. So I'm just giving a summary. We also saw that marriage was designed to be between a man and a woman. But to enjoy intimate union. A special union between the man and the woman. Chapter 2, verse 24. For this cause a man shall leave his father and his mother and shall cleave to the wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So God designed life to, per- to perpetuate through this marriage relationship between a husband and a wife, a man and a woman. And here through this relationship you'll see the beautiful circle or cycle of life. The man and woman come together, they have children, and soon they will form their own families, their own circle, and it goes and it continues, that circle of life. It's kind of funny, I'm at the place in my life, I've shared with you before, I don't get, I, I try not to cry in shows and movies, but I have to admit that whenever I go to a wedding now, I'm at that place in my life where I get a little choked up. And it's not about the wedding that's happening in the moment, right? I'm happy for them and all, but I'm not like real too like emotional about it. But I go back, I, I, kind of, I start to envision my own kids, their wedding day, what it'll be like to see my daughters, oh my goodness, or my son, oh my goodness, get married. I don't know if I'll stay composed that day, I'll be honest with you, right? But that's the cycle of life. The beautiful cycle of life that God created. That through the husband and wife, they'll have a family. And through that family comes life. And they will have their own family and they will have their own. Lord willing, of course, right? Acceptance to everything. But the man and the woman have roles and responsibilities to each other in the relationship. Based on what we can gather from the text, the man seems to bear more accountability in the relationship. Well, you say, well, how do you know that, Pastor Mike? Why are you getting that? Where are you getting that from? Notice what's interesting. When God created the man, God commands Adam to not eat of the fruit of the tree of knowledge, good and evil, before he creates Eve. Right, we see this in chapter 2, verse 16. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for in the day you eat of it you shall surely die. This doesn't mean Eve was, restrict, was not restricted by the command. But I think this speaks to the accountability that the man was given. Because I think God could have easily created both at the same time and spoke to both of them say, said, okay, you two, do not eat of the fruit. But for whatever reason God had intended to design, he first creates the man and he commands the man, do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For the day of it you shall surely die. God also gives the man authority to call and name the woman. That's kind of interesting. In chapter 1, we see God who's the one who calls and names. But here in chapter 2, we saw that he gives that authority to Adam or to the man. And the man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Verse 20, now the man called his wife's name Eve. We see that in chapter 3, verse 20. The man calls his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all the living so again, we see that God gives a special authority that he gave to the man. Third thing, God calls for the man first and speaks to him last. We talked about it. When both Adam and Eve ate of the fruits, who does he talk? call out first? He calls out the man. Hey, where are you? Right? The Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And we saw that once that he admits what he did and the woman admits what she did, right? God speaks to the man, he speaks to the woman, he speaks to the serpent, then he speaks to the woman, and then he saves the man for last. And we talked about that, right? If you're a kid, you're, you and your sibling get in trouble, you probably want to be the first one. It depends on your parents, I don't know how they do things. But you save the more serious one for last because this is going to take some time. And when he speaks to Adam, he speaks to Adam a little bit more than he does to Eve. God also calls for the man, or I'm sorry, God also, the emphasis is still on the man as they're banished from the garden. In chapter 3, verse 23, he says, Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to cultivate the ground from which he was taken. So he drove the man out. Of course, Eve was there with him. So you see a special emphasis and accountability seems to be given to the role of the man in this relationship. A higher degree of accountability and responsibility in the marriage relationship. And I don't think this is an antiquated, just an Old Testament idea. Paul references in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25, in talking about the relationship of the husbands and wives, he charges the husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That is a high degree of responsibility and accountability. It's not just date your wives, Send flowers on Valentine's Day. Make sure that they feel pretty. No, 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 it's not just that. Love your wives as Christ loves the church. I cannot imagine or think of any higher degree of accountability in a relationship than God telling the husbands, love your wives as I love you. That's some pretty serious accountability there. We'll get to more of this in the coming week. We saw that also God created the woman to be the man's helper. Then the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. So the Lord God fashions into a woman from the side of the man which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. This idea of a suitable helper. Now, we don't know what that means, right? We don't have this chore list, right? He didn't give Eve a chore list like, okay, I created you with an apron around your waist or, you know, with a, a pan and a, a spatula in your hand, you're going to be the cook, or he didn't create Aunt Eve with a rake, or and they didn't have vacuums then, right? Or a rake or something like, or right, tend to the house, tend to the home. We don't have a chore list of what God means as a helper. What does that mean? What we did see is that word does not imply inferiority or weakness. In fact, it's the exact opposite. Because that same word is used in other passages in the Old Testament describing God's role, the Lord God's role in the lives of Israel, his people. The Lord is their helper. He is their deliverer. He is their help in times of need. So certainly we wouldn't say and apply that same meaning to the Lord, that the Lord is the weaker vessel, right? So it's interesting It's kind of interesting if you do that word study on how the word is used to describe the Lord's role for Israel. So much so that if you look at the two descriptions for the husband and the wife, the man and the woman there, you can see how their responsibilities and a role for each other is to help each other, protect each other, govern, watch out for each other. Now, many of you may, some of you or some other people may hear this and think, I don't like the sound of this, this whole idea of women being the helper. Pastor Mike, this is 2023 we're talking here. This is not like 1923 or 1823 or the year 23 or 23 BC. Isn't that a little antiquated? Well, I must say, If scripture was to reverse the order and women were created first or we flipped it, would the women feel like, that sounds a little better. I like the sound of that. Right? If it was reversed, men, we would have to submit to God's design. Right? If Paul, writing his letter, said, now that we're in Christ, the roles are reversed, we would have to Submit to the Lord's design. Another, what I'm trying to say is that we have to be careful not to try to adjust God's intentions with our current ideologies, our social trends for the day. We have to be careful to not let culture today dictate God's design, our ideologies. How much does Scripture? into our ideologies today, right? We have to be careful with that. So whatever God had intended or designed, we have to trust God understand he had intention and design and realize what he was doing. But the question is, where did it go wrong? Where did it go wrong with Adam and Eve? We're not going to revisit all the passages. I'll refer to you back to the previous messages. You can go YouTube, Facebook, audio podcasting, listen to that there. But where did it all go wrong? We saw how first they entertained temptation. They entertained temptation. And then they failed to help each other. They were lured by what they thought they wanted. They were lured by what they thought they needed. And they were lured by what they thought God was holding back from them. And they were lured by it. They entertained the thought, the words of the serpents. But they also failed to help each other in that moment. So what happened? When they gave in, what happened? They immediately felt and experienced shame and guilt. They immediately felt shame and guilt. And out of God's mercy, he confronted them in their shame and guilt. Why do I say in his mercy? It is merciful that God allows us to experience shame and guilt. Why? Why? Because shame and guilt is like our warning sign, our indicator light that something is wrong. This is wrong. And it's out of God's mercy that he didn't leave them in their shame and guilt and say, well, messed up there. Let me just create a new one, right? He didn't leave them there. He confronted them in their shame and guilt. In the last two weeks in the men's fellowship and in the women's fellowship, Those conversations about shame and guilt. How we cope with, how we deal with shame and guilt. And a lot of times when we experience shame and guilt, we can easily run away from it. We cope with it by running away. We cover and hide like Adam and Eve did. And we can do that in all sorts of ways. Denial, suppression, run away from it, find something else to do, keep us busy, keep our minds distracted from it. But it's God's mercy that allows us to experience shame and guilt, to wake us up, to realize and recognize something is wrong. Something is wrong here. But what happened when Adam and Eve experienced shame and guilt, right? What did they do? When God confronted them, they did what many people do and what many couples have repeatedly done over the course of human history and human relationships. They may have admitted what they did, but what did they do? They blamed the others, they blamed each other. They couldn't help but point the finger at someone or something, right? Even when we admit we are wrong, sometimes we can't help but what? Point the finger at somebody else, right? We've all experienced that. When you've done something wrong, you say, okay, yeah, all right, I did that wrong, but, 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 it's their fault, right? Just to let you know, it wasn't just me, it's their fault too. We have a tendency to do that. And certainly, marriage relationship is not immune to that, right? I think we can all confess if those of us have been in a marriage relationship or are in a marriage relationship. That may have happened to us once or twice. Point the finger at our spouse. Here's the problem of pointing blame. The problem with pointing blame those who think, here's another statistic about divorce, those who think their partners should have worked harder to save the marriage. Okay? 66% of men think their partners should have worked harder to save their marriage. 74% of women think that their husbands should have worked harder to save their marriage. Let that soak in, right? It's probably skewed a little bit because women tend to want to initiate because of, you know, however the husbands have been, right? But let me catch this. Catch this. Those who believe they personally should have made more of an effort to prevent divorce, okay? You believe that you should have done more, made more of an effort to prevent the divorce. 32% of men say they should have done more. And 33% of women believe they should have done more. What does that tell us? we very much easily to say, it's their fault, but I've done all I could. I didn't do anything wrong. Right? It's very easy to do that. And I think we can apply that in many different areas, not just in marriage relationship. It is much easier to point and say, look at what they did that's wrong and feel, well, I have no no blame in this. I didn't do anything wrong. It's all their faults, right? Again, statistics don't say everything. And there are exceptions to statistics, right? But pointing blame at others is not a new problem, is it? We saw it at the garden. But see, what these statistics show is by doing so, we may also neglect our own responsibility. When we're quick to point blame at someone else, what they did that's wrong. But we neglect our own responsibility. You see, Adam and Eve, instead of looking out for each other, they sinned together. Adam neglected his responsibility, and Eve did not live up to her responsibility either. And they allowed each other to do the one thing that God said they should not do. And together, they failed together. See, when God confronted them, it's interesting, when God confronted them, they did admit to doing wrong, right? They admitted that they ate of the fruit. They didn't try to lie and say, God, I don't know what you're talking about. I didn't eat the fruit. Maybe she did. I didn't. No, they admitted to it, right? But they did not admit to the greater sin, right? Because eating the fruit in itself, eating fruit in itself wasn't the sin, it wasn't sin, right? Because God created all these fruit trees and all these fruit trees and said, eat and enjoy as much as you want. It wasn't the eating of the fruit that was sinful in of itself, right? Just like the concept, this idea, sex, physical intimacy, is not sin in itself. It becomes sin when what? It's done outside of God's intention outside of the marriage relationship between the husband and a wife right eating of the fru- eating fruit wasn't the sin- wasn't sinful act itself it's what they ate see the greater sin for adam and eve wasn't just that they ate fruit but they disobeyed god they dishonored god together both adam and eve they were in earshot. Adam was not far away. He was in earshot of what the serpent did. The serpent addressed both of them, but he was speaking to the woman, and the woman happened to be the speaker there. Adam was just kind of like, I don't know what he was doing. I don't know what he was saying. Was like, maybe he was like, oh, let's wait and see what happens to the woman. I don't know. But they sinned together. But see, what thing we lose sight of, of about all this is that we often rightfully focus on what we did that's wrong, right? The act itself. Sometimes we get so focused on the act that we neglect the greater sin. And that is disobedience to God. Dishonoring God. Because all that Adam and Eve admitted to was that they ate of the fruits. We don't see Adam and Eve saying, I did not listen to you. I dishonored you. They didn't, they didn't, that wasn't in the mind at least in what we were given. See, we may have wronged our spouse in a moment, in a time. We may have done something wrong or maybe someone else, you know, a relationship. But do we stop to consider how have we sinned against God. In this relationship. You see, we get caught up in the the moment and the actions, what someone did, what someone else did in those moments, and we focus on our spouse, we focus on another person. But do we stop to consider how have I sinned against God? God, how have I dishonored you in this? So when it comes to a marital commitment, right? The marriage commitment, the relationship. They remember the vows they exchanged with each other, right? You remember that moment, you exchanged vows, what you said you would commit to, you vow to. In that moment, you're not just making vows to each other. What makes the Christian marriage distinct is that you're not just making a commitment to each other, but you're making a vow commitment before God. You are are deciding to enter this God-given relationship, this God-given gift, and you're making a commitment before God. And we neglect that. We think it's, well, we're just making a commitment to each other, and, well, you know what, we can break each other's promise. But we can neglect the fact that, look, we are first accountable to God. Even when we have been wronged by somebody, we have to first recognize we are still accountable to God. How we respond, how we act, what we do, even when we're wronged, we are still accountable to God taking out of a marriage relationship, in our other relationships in our life. If you've been wronged by somebody, you're still accountable to God in how you respond, how you act, what you do in retaliation, how you respond in retaliation. So when we're, we have this idea of how we sin against God, do we, can we honestly say, Lord, have I been faithfully upholding my responsibilities as a husband? Lord, have I been faithful in holding up my responsibilities as a husband? Lord, have I been faithful to upholding my responsibilities as a wife? because we are held accountable to God before another person. You may say, Pastor Mike, but you don't understand. You don't know my husband like I do. You don't know my wife like I do. And I'll say, I know. Maybe I'm thankful (laughs) that I don't. Right? Right? but you don't understand what they do. You don't understand what it's like. And I say, I understand and I agree. But in all circumstances, we need to be able to understand we are first accountable to God. And we have to be able to answer that question first. God, did I dishonor you? Have I dishonored you? And for many or some, or whatever that number is, maybe that answer is no, you have not dishonored me. You have done everything as faithfully as you possibly could as a husband and wife, and you still find yourself in this situation. That can very well be. We started off with the question, Will I? And we end with the question, Will I? Will I allow the Lord to lead and affect my heart in the marriage relationship? Will I forgive as God, as I expect God to forgive me? Will I do that? Will I love my wife? as I want God to love me, as I experience God's love for me, will I be able to love as the model that Jesus gave to us? Will I be able to submit to my husband even when he gives me all the reasons not to? See, all these will I questions flipped over. We have to be willing to say in the marriage relationship and in any relationship, whether it's children and parents whether it's your friends whether it's whatever it is we are held accountable before God and that's the first thing we need to confront because Adam and Eve neglected that point they lost sight that they're accountable to God it was God who gave that command and they were lured by their own expectations desires and wants it's difficult It's difficult to let your heart do that. I understand that. It's hard. And it takes a lot of humility to not let pride dictate what's wrong. It takes a lot of humility to say before God, God, search my heart first. Before I start listing all the things that my spouse is doing, search my heart first. What's my role in this? What's my responsibility in this? Can you search me so that I will be honorable before you? Will I honor the Lord in my marriage first and foremost? Lord, I first want to honor you. Help me so that if possible, I can honor my spouse. The picture on the slide, I'll close with this, is a wedding ring on the edge of a finger for those of you who aren't watching and describing, it's a picture of a finger and a wedding ring on the edge of a finger. Is the ring coming on? Or is it coming off? Next time we're going to look at more specific conflicts, specific results of sin in our, what we share in the experience of a marriage relationship. I want us to bow our heads. So let's close our eyes. Lord God, you gave us a great gift of life, a great gift of relationships, the great gift to experience love, companionship, intimacy, fellowship. For some of us, we've experienced being able to see life come through our relationships and our children. And Lord we also recognize life comes with conflict hardship pain suffering and with those things it affects our relationships And Lord I'm sure all of us are experiencing those things in some way or another in some degree in some relationship Lord, I pray that you would please speak to us. You know what we've experienced. You know what we've going through. But Lord, we pray we will look to you and ask you, Lord, first. Lord, have I been faithful to what you have asked of me? What I have committed to do? And if not, Lord, can you help me? Show me, Lord God, my part that I may be right with you. Thank you, Lord God, that you are a healer, a miracle worker, a comforter, and a model of love. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and let's worship together.